Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords, and this is the 446th show of ROI. Our guest for today's show is Catherine Goebel, Paul A. Anderson Professor in the Arts at Augustana College and Director of the Whistler Center for Criticism. And we're going to be talking about James McNeil Whistler and his critics. The history bus for today's show are Brett Menard and Terry Toppler. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zapp Sapital. And our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. To begin, we want to welcome you to the show, Catherine. We're glad to have you. Thank you. Um, Good to be here. Good. So the first segment of our show is called Farouk Dinarin, and our goal is to give our listeners a little background on the subject area that we're going to be talking about. So can you start us off with some basic information on Whistler's career? Okay. James McNeil Whistler, half the son of Whistler. He's an American expatriate, and he's very difficult to pigeonhole. He's American-born, studied uh, as a child in Russia, and um, was uh, going to West Point Academy, um, and I think he kind of displayed that he was not going to be, he was a nonconformist in that he was um, dismissed from West Point Academy, his father's alma mater, uh, for too many demerits. And he used to say uh, it was because I flunked chemistry and his silicon were a gas, I'd be a major general today. <laughs> but in reality, it was too many demerits. His father died, who was an engineer from West Point, who designed the first railway in Russia, uh, but came down with a fever and died. So Whistler's mother, who's famous from the portrait, moved the boys back to the U.S., where he was enrolled, as I said, in West Point Academy. Dismissed from that, the only thing that he did do well was artwork. And so his mother put him to work uh, for the U.S. Coast and Geodetic Society to learn etching to make maps. But then he started doodling on the plates for the maps. <laughs> so he was dismissed from that as well. Took the inheritance he had from his father and went, like many 19th century artists, to Paris to study. And that's where he, he did a lot of his um, study. Good friends with people like Monet, Manet, Degas who once chided him for saying, you behave like a man who has no talent. Um, but at any rate, he studied in Paris and very much was inspired by Henri Mourget's novel, Send de la Vie de Bohème, The Life of the Bohemian, on which the opera is based. And he was determined to lift the life of a Bohemian in Paris and um, was supposed to take classes with the English students, but he tended to oversleep on those and spend his time with the Parisians with whom he was much more simpatico. And uh, all sorts of stories abound from Whistler. People used to put their shoes outside and indoor. They'd be polished uh, and ready to go the next morning. He was invited to a um, dress ball and didn't have proper shoes. So he went to the inn, borrowed shoes all night, danced in them, and returned them before the owner knew that his shoes had been out for the night. The trick with Whistler is his anecdotes sometimes um, outshine the knowledge people have of the artist. And he eventually moved to London, where he stood out quite a bit more. His, first ma his last major work for the Royal Academy is the famous arrangement in gray and black, Portrait of His Mother, 
who most of us call Whistler's mother. It's in the Musée d'Orsay in Paris, and he liked the fact that the French had really accepted him because he felt they were much more aesthetically keen than the English. Um, and ultimately uh, did quite well in Britain and made sort of abstracted nocturnal scenes, loved correlations between music and art. And when the most powerful Victorian critic, John Ruskin, uh, stated in his review of Whistler's famous nocturne, I've seen and heard much of Cockney impudence, but never expected to ask a coxcomb or court jester as 200 guineas for flinging a pot of paint in the public's eye. Well, Whistler sued him for libel. It was quite public. Um, and when the attorney general asked Whistler, do you think you can make me see the beauty of that nocturne? Whistler looked long and hard at the attorney general and at the audience that had gathered in the courtroom and said, no, I fear it would be like pouring music into the ear of a deaf man. And then the attorney general asked him, do you think you can make me see the beauty of that nocturne? And um, how long did it take you? And he said, well, I guess two or three days. And the attorney general said, so you asked this much money, which was a great deal at the time, for 200 guineas uh, for two, three days work. And Whistler responded, no, I ask it for the knowledge of a lifetime. In other words, I'm not paid per hour. He won the trial because Ruskin had crossed the line of fair criticism attacking the artist and not just the art, but he was bankrupted as a result. And ultimately, there are many, many stories that abound with Whistler. He created the famous Peacock Room that's in the Freer Gallery at the Smithsonian Institution. Um, I would encourage people to go see that if you haven't seen it before, where he just said he got carried away and took over and painted what came to him, and the owner didn't even know he was doing it while he was out of town. Said he was like Michelangelo with the Sistine Chapel. He just started creating. And when Leyland, his patron, came back, he threatened to horsewhip Whistler for the liberties he took with his room. He, he did a press opening while the owner still hadn't seen the room. And um, later it's been revealed probably liberties with Leyland's wife <laughs> as well. So there are so many stories with Whistler, and um, he was such an innovator, probably one of the most important modern artists leading into the 20th century. He's the first who uh, suggested that works of art should be hung on the line with space between them, which in Victorian times they were usually hung from floor to ceiling, and you didn't want your work in the academy to be skied or at the top. Right. So he had many, many ideas, and he fought for the rights of artists that if he sold a painting when he was very, very poor, why should a later owner gather a lot more money for selling it once he had caught on? So these are a lot of things we talk about, and I personally think he's one of the first modernists to grasp the importance of celebrity sure. and to realize that any news can be good news. Oscar Wilde was said to have said to him once, oh, Whistler at a dinner party, I wish I'd said that. And Whistler just turned to him in front of the dinner party and said, you will, Oscar, you will. <laughs> well, uh, Catherine, we're going to have to uh, put an end to this segment, but I think we've got okay. plenty to work with for the second. So, Good. so um, please uh, stay tuned because we're going to have a lot more to say, I have a feeling. Uh, this is ROI on KLA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM.
KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Catherine Goebel, Paul A. Anderson Professor in the Arts at Augustana College and Director of the Whistler Center for Criticism. And we're going to be talking about James Whistler and his critics. Our history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Terry Toppler. And Brett, as a great appreciator of art, why don't you start us off? So when we look at Whistler's mother, we get something that's very kind of formal and and very reserved. And we don't get that impression of the artist himself from the story you're telling. So how, uh, how did mom react to his uh, various foibles and uh, proclivities. Well, I must say that when mom decided to come from the United States and live with him for a while in London, it shook up his household a bit. (laughs) His mistress was sent packing. Uh, He loved to have big pancake breakfast. It was kind of the Yankee idea. He was sort of a little bit like the Mark Twain of London, very similar quips. But she absolutely adored her son, who could do no wrong, I'm sure, in um, her viewpoint. You see her in mourning clothes, uh, as was the the custom at the time. Uh, Women would wear mourning clothes for many, many years after the death of their husbands. And um, I have a cartoon on my desk right now that my mother gave me from The New Yorker, where she's sitting there in a formal pose, and he's seen from the back looking at a rainy window, and she says, surely, son, you can find something to paint indoors. <laughs> so it's just sort of the, the reason for it. But uh, he often said his model didn't show up that day and mom was staying with him. She was deeply religious and he was um, brought up with a very straight Yankee sort of point of view. Um, but she absolutely adored him and I think could probably see no wrong. But he definitely dusted himself off and um, straightened things out a little bit when she came. But even he said, this is not important as a portrait of my mother. It was the last uh, portrait that he sent to the Royal Academy because there was debate as to whether or not the Hanging Committee wanted to accept it. And he was very miffed at that. Um, And it was the one that he worked very hard to have the French buy it, which he was delighted that it would go to the Louvre. And it would prove a point he often made that the English had no taste, but the French appreciated him. And he had a very big reception to celebrate that mom was going to be in Paris. And when he was walking down the street one day, he had the Legion of Honor medal on his pinned to his chest. And one of his old uh, Bohemian friends, Santin Latour, said, for this, you have sold your mother. In other words, to be mainstream and to be successful rather than the Bohemians of their youth, the suffering artists. That's good. <laughs> Terry. 
Yes. Um, Catherine, you alluded to um, a relationship you had with Oscar Wilde. Uh, can you talk mm-hmm. about that? Were they friends at the beginning, or how did the feud begin? They started as uh, very good friends, and actually Whistler was sort of a mentor to Wilde. Um, Wilde did his famous lectures, and that's about the time that Whistler decided to do the 10 o'clock, which is his well-known lecture where he talks about the meaning of art and his philosophy. And I think with two very strong personalities, um, they began to be competitive, and Whistler thought Oscar was stealing a lot of his best lines and ideas. It was really fun when I was researching at the newspaper library in London at the British Library, and I could find as many notes about Whistler in the gossip columns as I could find in the art reviews. And Wilde was much the same. They were both very, very outgoing, um, very, very, the people you would want to invite to a dinner party, such as the, the quip I told you where they sort of competed to see who could be the most flamboyant. They both dressed in their own distinctive ways and made a presentation where you knew they were coming down the street. So I think it was more competition. And I know when I looked at the reviews for Whistler's famous 10 o'clock lecture, so many reviews compared him to Oscar Wilde, and I'm sure that aggravated him. But after the terrible business with Oscar and the trial and his going to prison, uh, Whistler was very sympathetic and felt terrible for him. So I, I got to tell you, I really like this guy. He's, <laughs> he is, he's kind of my kind of guy, if you if you knew me, as, as uh, some of the... Uh, the history buffs do um but i'm i'm interested in the fact that i mean obviously this was maybe one of the first artistic celebrities of the modern era um and you know you know he he certainly made a made a splash when he was uh alive and yet i don't know that any of that has made it into what most people um, associate with Whistler. So, so what kind of happened? How did that get lost? Was that intentional by by art critic? You know, did he get buried by criticism to the point where he, you know all of that flamboyance got sort of dust, you know, put away? Or you know, because I, I would have really enjoyed knowing all of that when I was sitting in my art history class uh, in high school. <laughs> um, I think that I often think that his personality sometimes got in the way of being taken seriously. Uh, when John Ruskin wrote his famous review and Whistler took him to trial for libel. Now, granted, Ruskin was suffering at the time from a strange Victorian malady called brain fever and um, I think was getting a bit senile, etc. So, I mean, Whistler saw an opportunity there. But I think Ruskin also felt that Whistler wasn't a serious artist because he was in the gossip columns, because he dressed in a certain way, uh, that he was so flamboyant. But what Ruskin missed was the fact that he was a very serious artist and one of the most innovative of his generation. Um, so I think, uh, and which is one of the reasons why Ruskin lost the libel suit because even Whistler's greatest critics couldn't say he wasn't a great and serious artist, despite the personality conflict that they might have all had. 
but he his last biographical book was called The Gentle Art of Making Enemies. And so he recorded a lot of the reviews. He even did an exhibition where he took reviews out of context. It might have even been a positive review and made a catalog and handed it out now that he was successful uh, to make the critics look very, very bad. So he's one of the first, if not the first, artist to write reviews of the critics' reviews and have them published in the newspaper. And I think it's very relevant for our times, the way in which you see celebrity made. I don't know what he would do with social media <laughs> and the ability to self-promote. I was going to say, it. I have some guesses. <laughs> yeah, I, I, think, I think so. But he was very far ahead of his time, but he was also extremely ahead of his time in terms of being part of the movement called Art for Art's Sake. Whereas Victorian paintings tended to have a narrative and dripping with morality, sort of Dickensian. And he believed that aesthetics were enough and that why can't you, nature contains the elements um, and that you can pick and choose like a musician. But to say to take nature as she is, is to say to the pianist, sit on the piano. In other words, he felt that artists should go back to the idea that they were geniuses that created things better than nature. And yet he was trained in uh, France under the realists, someone like Gustave Courbet, who said, show me an angel and I'll paint one. And right. that the best painting is just what you see for your eyes. So he's very much part of this aesthetic movement of the turn of the century with the idea that um, beauty is enough, aesthetics are enough. And of course, that leads to abstract expressionism, et cetera, in the 20th century. Right. Brett. So with all of this back and forth that he has with um, critics, how was his relationship with other artists? Did he criticize them or did he just kind of let them do their own thing uh, and not remark too much on it? Um, he, he would remark and he even had students later that he promoted and that, um, were very beholding to him. Um, I think, you know, he had made the point in his Art and Art Critics, which he published an essay after the trial and delivered it to all of the editors about how bad he thought the critics were. And it led critics like uh, Henry James to think about criticism, and it was too negative. But also people would say, you know, you said that none but an artist should be a critic, and yet you had critics who appeared at the trial against you. So I think he, he liked to feel that he could criticize others, but I think he was much more interested, I think, in establishing his own persona and very, very interested in um, his own brand mark and uh, creating his own legacy for the future, which is why I think he wrote The Gentle Art of Making Enemies. But he was certainly not afraid, and he even got into a few fistfights with former friends. And so I think that's why he called it the gentle art of making enemies. I know when I was first researching in Glasgow, where a lot of his archives are held in Scotland, an older scholar said, well, what do you think about Whistler? Do you like Whistler? And I said, well, I don't think I'd want to live with him, but I'd love to go to dinner and chat with him. <laughs> but he was deeply in love with his wife, and she got very, very ill with cancer. His brother was a physician who was who fought on the side of the South during the Civil War, and he thought his brother could save her. 
and it absolutely broke his heart that she died and languished. And I don't think he ever forgave his brothers. So when he felt deeply for people, he felt very deeply and he could be very loyal. But I think some of the anecdotes kind of got in the way and the press of his being taken entirely seriously. Did that answer your question? Yeah. Okay, Terry. Yes, Catherine, in some of his paintings, I see a very strong Asian influence, such mm-hmm. as the princess from the land of porcelain. Was this a characteristic of the times, or was this unique to Whistler? It became a characteristic of the times. He was one of the very first to collect um, Japanese prints and porcelain. When Commodore Perry reopened trade with Japan in the mid-19th century, it had been virtually isolated except for a few Dutch trade ships for about 150 years. And Whistler was one of the first to see the beauty and the aesthetics, as well as in the porcelain, which he collected with great excitement. And um, he started to introduce Leyland, his patron for whom he did the Peacock Room, who had a whole porcelain, uh, Asian porcelain cl- collection in which he held in that room. But he was one of the very first to introduce the aesthetics of Japanese art. You'll see um, Japanese also influenced the Impressionists in France. But um, then it became very acceptable for the average bourgeois, upper bourgeois family. And he hated that fact, that it became something that all everybody wanted to collect because it was a fad, rather than he didn't feel that they had the true understanding of the beauty of it. And he really didn't want to understand it within its own cultural significance. Um, Japan was seen as this faraway sort of primitive place. Granted, not the way we look at Japan today. And there was a sort of mystery and a beauty about it that really influenced, well, Impressionists, Post-Impressionists, and definitely Whistler. Okay. So the, the tale of malcontents in general is one that never ends well that um you always end up at you know that that the 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 powers that be or the the culture around you turns on you and and things uh end up you know you end up dying in poverty and so forth you said that whistler was was left broke after his lawsuit i'm just wondering how did things turn out for him how was the end of his life um how was the immediate legacy? We now know him as as a as a very important uh, painter, mm-hmm. but was that true immediately at the end of his life, or at the end, you know, immediately after his death, or or did did things take sort of a downturn, as often happens for geniuses? No, I think he was well appreciated by the end of his life. The trial was in the late eighteen seventies. He didn't die until nineteen o three. So he had a lot of time to see that he became a fashionable portrait painter. Uh, He had younger students who came to study with him as younger students came to study with Claude Monet at Giverny. Um, He was the head of of an art society and um, had a lot of acolytes. So, and he made a great deal of money. His collection was quite good. So he rebounded very, very well. His prints were always accepted. His etchings, uh, even from day one, were well accepted and always had a terrific market. It was his paintings that challenged people a bit more, especially the nocturnes, which had the abstraction. And people weren't quite ready. If he had flung a pot of paint in the public's faces, Ruskin suggested he really would have been 
very Pollock and very, very, very innovative for the time. But I think um, by the end of his life, a lot of people realized what uh, great strides he made for modern art, and he became a hero for the early 20th century artists. Okay. Um, Brett, I'm going to give you the last question here uh, before time runs out. So the last question that I have is you, you talked about his love for his uh, wife and for the string of mistresses that he uh, enjoyed prior to that. Did his uh, wife have uh, a big issue with his uh, rakish ways prior to their marriage? Or how did she uh, react to when, like, an illegitimate child would swing by? Uh, from what I've heard in the more recent things that people have published, uh, I think she, they actually, uh, she was very supportive. They married later. She was uh, married to Godwin, who was a well-known architect and a good friend of Whistler's, and he died. So they got married a little bit later in life, and I think she became one of his best advocates. She brought him to the attention of Charles Freer, the uh, Detroit, Michigan uh, millionaire who bought the Peacock Room from Leyland and had it shipped over from London and put it in his mansion. And then he gave that to the Smithsonian, which is what you have in D.C. at the Freer Gallery. He also became a very important patron. So I think she, I think she was very forgiving of any of the foibles, and I think he also was very, very good to her, as I said it. It broke, it broke his heart when she died. And one of the things I enjoy about Whistler, my other interest is literature, is he is very articulate. And if you read his statements, uh, even if they might have a little turn of, of humor in them, um, he's a beautiful writer. And you don't always get that with visual artists where they can really um, say what they're thinking. And I think with Beatrice, he also was always very articulate and very kind to her. And they, they ended up moving to Paris, but they all ultimately moved back to London when she died. And he was attending to her at the Savoy Hotel. All right, Catherine, in about a minute and a half or so, uh, I would like to give you the last word for our show. Why do you think knowing about Whistler is relevant in today's world? Well, as any historian, art historians feel that history is extremely important, and I think in our current troubled age, we can learn a lot from history. Uh, as I said, I think he was one of the masters of creating a reputation, creating maybe at times an alternative reality via the press and via letters to the press and the sort of persona he had. And when I look at the sense of celebrity today, uh, I don't think people are doing a whole lot better than he was able to do at that time. And aside from that, I think his ideas about exhibitions, about collecting art, about being fair to artists, and he advocated for younger artists, is extremely important as well. But the general art of making enemies has long been a must-read for art students. It still very much um, has a lot of innovative ideas within it that still resonate today. All right. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KLA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. 
This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 446th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapp Sapital. My name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Catherine Goble, Paul A. Anderson, professor in the arts at Augustana College and director of the Whistler Center for Criticism. We've been talking about James Whistler and his critics. The history bus for today's show were Brett Menard and Terry Toppler. This is Relevant or Irrelevant on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotza Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.